So thankful for that, that passionate energy uh, linked to the best news that there is in the gospel. Uh, yeah. Um, Shalom's dog doesn't know why he runs around when Manchester United scores, but, but we share that passion because we share uh, that refreshing reception of the greatest news, that we are God's children, that we're chosen, not rejected, that we have a new identity to work out. And uh, we are in this series called Breathe. Each week you get a little bookmark, and uh, this series goes through really what makes our life flourish. I, I think a Breathe uh, for this series, and uh, several years ago there was the the rescue attempt for these whales that had wound up underneath these great ice flows. And they actually went and they, they drilled holes into the ice so that these whales could receive the oxygen that they needed. And, and really, that's what this series is about. Uh, it's looking at what oxygenates our environment and our, our spiritual health. And so we looked at, and they kind of come in couplets of contrast. We first looked at our intake of the Word of God. We need to have outside-in input from the pure Word of God into our life. And so we looked at Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives our souls. We have to have intake or we will not be healthy. But then the next week we looked at our output and really we looked at prayer. And prayer is the converse really of taking in the word. It's kind of spilling our guts before God. Uh, and then we looked at meditation. Meditation isn't just emptying our minds, but it's, it's this hybrid of taking the word of God into our minds until it explodes into our hearts. It's kind of a hybrid between Bible reading and prayer, talking it over. And then after meditation, we looked at praise, how important it is that we turn our walk and awareness of God into outwardly verbal praise for him. Uh, and then we looked at fasting. Fasting is really, it's not just about depriving yourself of something, but it's replacing that with God. Uh, fasting recognizes that we can't just shoehorn God into a life that has no vacancy and room. Sometimes we've got to get rid of something to make room for him. And so the essence of fasting is replacing, whether it's the preparation of a meal or the consuming of a meal or entertainment or media or something, and say, I'm going to forego that and I'm going to fill that with time with God. Uh, and then we looked at feasting. Feasting is taking the pleasures of God and making sure that we trace them back to the God who gave them to us. So pleasures are like the shafts of light that come. Feasting is where we turn it back and say, it's from the Father of lights. And then last week, we looked at solitude. Sometimes we've got to just break away and find the white space, the margin in our life, uh, because ultimately we all We'll stand alone before God and face some things alone. We've got to have the strength of who we are before God. And then this week we look at community because the reality is that we can't really grow just in solitude. We can think we're growing. You know, if you have the, the house to yourself, you can think, I've really been patient this weekend, uh, but no one's around. <laughs> so you don't get to make that judgment. Uh, and we're looking at, at relationships and our desperate need for them. Uh, less than a month ago, our, our family was down in Hatteras, North Carolina, in the Outer Banks, and um, I got the permit to drive on the beach. I usually had the Jeep down there, but for various reasons, I just I had the, the pilot, but that's okay. It's approved for beach driving. You just, you know, take the air out of the tires from 30 to like 15 and, uh, and, and go out there. And so I had my three daughters with me, and we had a great time getting to places that you just can't get on foot to explore. And then we're driving back, and there had been this kind of blowing storm, and we were riding along, and all of a sudden we just sunk. Like the, the car sunk down to the floorboard, you know? And you're just helpless. I mean, if you, we tried to dig ourselves out. That's futile. Uh, there's hardly anybody around because this storm system is coming in and blowing, and, 
And the thing down there that is so amazing is it's not a question of if anybody's going to stop. As soon as someone sees you, they all stop because they've all got, you know, these four-wheel drives that have all this power to them, and they're just waiting for some, you know, suburbanite idiot <laughs> who's driving a Honda Pilot instead of a Jeep, you know, and so, like, everybody stops, and then there's this kind of debate just to us, kind of like, hey, don't go with that truck. They don't know how to drive their vehicle. Um, hey, that's a Toyota. It's not as good as a Ford. Let me hook you up. I'll drive you out, you know, and so there's all this debate going on, and then to each other, they're all saying, look at this idiot and the pilot. I can't believe he did this, but you, but they had to pull us out, uh, and, and, and it did take a few of them to get us rigged up, and then quickly we're we're out, and then I, you know, I, I made my girls run to catch me because I had to get across this, this part of the sand. So I'm like, you're going to have to run because I'm not stopping until I get about 100 yards down where we're out of this. And so they were so cheerful about just running to catch their dad who was taking off. <laughs> but that, that really picture of our rescue, our need for community, is kind of a, a picture of the delusion God wants to puncture, I think, this morning. And that is that we can somehow get through on our own. And the passage we're going to look at, and I want to break down and work through this passage in its main compartments, is 1 John chapter 4. The Apostle John was known in his, his older years for just exhorting the church to love in community. And here's the word of God. Let's read it and then dig in. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I want to look at three things from this passage. I want to look at the power of community. Then I want to look at the pattern of community given to us in this passage. And then I want to look at the, how the community perfects us, the perfection of God's work through community. Power, pattern, perfection. And, and the first thing, the power of, of community, really, it comes from who God is. This passage says God is love. That is a powerful statement, and it really is predicated on understanding that our God's main attribute is love, and he has never had to learn or develop or evolve into a more loving God than he is. He's always been love, and for that to be true, he has to not just be a solitary being. The Bible teaches that our God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He has always been overflowing in love, so unlike the deistic conception of God, or I might say, with all respect, the Islamic conception of God, where he's just a solitary um, sovereign but isolated being, our God actually has community in himself from all eternity. C.S. Lewis said it very well. He said, some people stagger and say, I can't believe in a God who is three in one. That just, we would never come up with that. And C.S. Lewis says, yes, we never would, because if God were not this way, if he were not one God in three persons, he would be less than he is, because he would have had to learn how to love in relationship. In other words, what this says is that before our God had a sin to hate, he had a son to love. And he was always overflowing in community. And so the gospel is inviting us into the power of, of that loving community. And, and it recognizes that we cannot reach our destiny apart from coming into that power. And I love how he says that if the one who loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, 
we cannot function in relationships. We can't function apart from relationships, but we don't know how to manage relationships in, and love them the way God has loved us apart from the new birth, to be born into God's family. Now, to be born into God's family, first of all, it means that nothing in our natural birth can get us in. This was, John was the one who recorded Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Nicodemus had all these moral attributes. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was extremely respectable. He was a guy we certainly could have trusted and relied upon in terms of his integrity. He had the first five books of the Bible memorized. He was, he was devout and serious, and all of those are good things. He comes to Jesus by night, and he basically is saying, let's partner together and in John 3. And Jesus says to him, you cannot even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And he's saying to Nicodemus, nothing you do counts. And, and, and that aspect of being born again means that the slate is absolutely wiped clean. But it doesn't just mean that. Although that is incredible. We could spend forever on that. The slate being wiped clean and us being brought into the, the presence of God. But to be born again means that you have the divine nature implanted in you. You don't just receive a new start in life. You receive a new life to start with. Because if we don't have that new life in us to start with that new power giving us instruction about relationships is like giving me instructions on how to drive when i'm stuck in the sand it's like a lifeguard giving instruction to a drowning person from a kayak hey try this do this no they need to be rescued and they need to have a new life implanted into them uh, and, and so to be born again is, yeah, the slate is wiped clean. You recognize nothing you do counts. You cannot earn or deserve or present a resume. You, you come through the sheer grace of God. But also it means there's a new power now driving in you. You are, as Peter says, the partaker of the divine nature. And, and so this power is something that we're, we're invited into by God. And we can't reach our destiny apart from it. Even Adam in the garden, in a perfect world where he had a perfect heart and a perfect body, God pronounced everything good around him, and he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. Now, note, it didn't say that Adam was lonely. It just said that God saw that Adam could not fulfill God's destiny for him while he was alone. I think it means very simply, he could, if your vision and my vision are something that we don't need other people for, it's not God-sized. I think our vision means we need, we need a community around us. And this, if this was true for Adam before the fall, if it was true for Jesus, who constantly referred to the Father and the Spirit in his ministry, he said that I only do the things I see my Father in heaven do. I'm only saying the things that my Father is saying. Uh, he moved in, this, in the divine community, and then he formed community from the 12 and then his inner circle what this is saying is that we also need a 12 and we need an inner circle that we cannot function in our life the way of, and on our own power. And we cannot receive that community and that inner circle and manage it apart from the power of God from the outside in. So that's the first thing that it's, that it's, it's making, making clear to us. We can't do this on our own. The, the second thing he sets forth is that the divine pattern is seen that our sense of community is shaped by Jesus, and it's shaped by Jesus at the highest expression of his love, and that is the cross. He, he makes it clear, he says, in this is how the love of God was made manifest. There is no other place that more manifests the love of God than what God did in the sending forth of his son. Uh, really, the, this action of sending Jesus, the only son of God, was sent and devoted as a missionary to save us. He was sent forth, and then Verse 10 says it so well, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us 
and gave his son to be the propitiation. This, I'm so glad they, they, this translation dared to use a word that we don't naturally know what it means, propitiation. Because it expresses something that is otherworldly that we would never come up with, that is, is, is really a, a technical term for what happened in the temple uh, in the forerunning of Jesus in these sacrifices. What the sacrifices did is, in a sense, they confronted the obstacle of our hearts before God. And it was not just our brokenness or our weakness or our failures and flaws, but actually our rebellion against God, our hostility before God. And it says that was not enough to dim the love of God for us, that when he saw the worst about us, our opposition, that we were shaking our fist instead of running toward him, we were running the opposite way, that our God intervened. Uh, that propitiation really means that God took what was hostile in us and he absorbed it in himself. Propitiation means that Jesus took our hostility toward God, but it also took what God would have had to be hostile toward because God is hostile in us toward what is hostile to him. And it, the, the, the definition of propitiation, the best short definition, is really to quench God's wrath. Now again, God's nature is not wrathful, we had to sin and mess it up for him to express wrath. His nature is love. We have to do something horrible to call forth wrath, but his, his wrath is an instrument of his love. He's a, it's a loving wrath because the reason he's wrathful is he recognizes that the image he implanted in us is being marred. It's like one writer said, there is no one who hates drunkenness more than the father who sees it destroying the life of his son. He hates it because he sees how it is, is marring that image, disabling that image. And, and Jesus saw this, this worst that I've done, and rather than turn away from us and, and just ring, you know, shake off the dust and, and move the other direction, he moved toward us in going to the cross. This is the kind of love that should shape our community in a distinctive way. Community and love are often experienced in our world as kind of a contract. I'll be good to you as long as you're good to me. I'll be a faithful friend to you as long as you're faithful to me. I'll seek to be the, the bargain of a marriage partner to you as long as you are a bargain of a marriage partner to me. That's a contract basis. The Bible says that our God doesn't know contract when it comes to love. He is, he is willing to go the whole distance. He's not a contract God. He's a covenant God. And a covenant God goes the whole distance, not part of the distance in his love, and his love doesn't stop at the red lights of our sin and the roadblocks of our sin, but actually that simply provokes him to go the full way Amen. and to bring it all the way down. And th so this is what is to define us in our community, that we have a different and distinctive kind of love. That propitiation means God takes the initiative to move nearer to jerks and screw-ups and misfits and rebels and in fact, the greatest manifestation of his love is when that collides with who he is. That, that's a high calling for our community to be shaped and to live that out in a world where it's often contractual obligations, where even marriages are seen as 50-50. You didn't do your 50, so I'm not doing my 50. No, Christian love is 100-100. And there's a tremendous commentary on uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment. Now, I know when I mentioned an author like that, some of you are getting nightmares about your college class or your English class that you didn't get a good grade in. But Mark Galley in Christianity Today, uh, the editor of Christianity, breaks this down. And 
the place in this, in this novel, if you haven't read it, is the, the lead character, uh, Raskolnikov, commits two horrific murders. And then he falls in love with this young woman, Sonia. So he's committed these two horrible, horrific murders, but he falls in love with Sonia, and she falls in love with him. He's drawn to her, and yet at some point he learns that one of the, the women that he murdered was her beloved friend. And he cannot have a relationship with her without somehow letting her know that he had murdered her friend. He didn't have a good alibi. There, it was not in self-defense. It was a horrendous, hideous crime. Uh, and so he's got to tell her. And so he tells her in kind of a roundabout way that she'll have to think through before it dawns on her. And he crafts the story that it dawns on her. The moment it dawns for her, Dostoevsky says this. He, she jumped up, seeming to not know what she was doing. He's in the room, and she's wringing her hands. And then she walks into the middle of the room. You're expecting as you read it that she's going to, like, tell him off or scream or just run away and never come back. But that's not what she does. She goes back and forth, back and forth, not knowing what to do. And then she gets near him. Her shoulder almost touches his. And all of a sudden, she takes a start. Her body just has an involuntary hit. And she jerks as though she herself had been stabbed. And then she utters this cry. And she falls on her knees before him. The murderer of her friend revealed to her. And she says, what have you done? What have you done to yourself? And she jumps up, and then we expect her to go out the door, but she jumps up and she flings herself on his neck. And she throws her arms around him, and she holds him tightly to her. And then she says, in such poignant words, she says, there is no one, no one in the world now who is unhappy as you. And she cries in violent, hysterical weeping. And it's in the midst of this that we see in her violent, hysterical weeping something of the cross because the cross is really the sign of God's violent, hysterical weeping for us. She's weeping partly for the murdered friend, but also for the murderer of her friend. And, and she speaks to him in this beautiful nature, this tragic sadness that depicts uh, the, the mournful victory, but the, the drawing near to us in our sin that the cross does. And, and she, she says to him, she says, you must confess this. You must go to the authorities. You must pay the price. She doesn't soft sell uh, any of the implications of the heinousness of his crime, but she also doesn't run the other direction from him. She throws herself around him. She, she embraces him, and he says, are you going to abandon me? I'm going to be sent to Siberia. And she says, I am going to go to Siberia with you as you pay the price for what you've done. She says, we will suffer together, and together we will bear our cross, is what she says. And God, that is such a beautiful depiction, I think, of Christian community. Christian community, in, in the worst about us, it doesn't just give it a wink and a nod and say, well, because you're friends, we're just, we'll just have this little contract. You don't bother me about my sins, and I won't bother you about yours. But what we say, in a sense, we're all murderers. We're all the murderers of the Son of God. And yet in the very midst of that, he embraces us and says, yes, if you had been in the crowd, you would have shouted crucify, but that's the very sin I died for. We're, there's level ground around the cross. So it means that we can't look down on anyone, even a little bit. And we can't place ourselves on a pedestal. And, and it's out of that that we love. It's that dynamic. And so it means in Christian community, there's no, there's no finger pointing. There's no blaming. There's certainly no shaming. 
The only pointing we do is that we point to the one who actually bore our blame and broke the spell of sin and actually was able to separate it from us by paying that price for it. And so we are the community that can say to everyone, no matter what their history, their background, we can say, we can say there's more grace here than there is sin in you. And there's a community willing to receive you completely, knowing the worst there is about you, because this God knows the worst about all of us. We're in the same boat. There's not a pecking order or a rank in our, in our fellowship. And he's saying, this is how we love. He says, in this is love. We love through him. We love because the cross has, has unearthed and upended any, any kind of pecking order or rank or, or layering of sin, and it's simply pointing all of us to the one who can truly bear it. It means that we can tell everybody that the good news of the gospel is God is not angry with you. There is a place where his anger was removed and was spent so that this can be separated from you. It's the good news. It's religion that has people come in and walk on eggshells in community and says, well, I don't know, God may strike me. How many times does an outsider say, I would, I would visit your church, I'm afraid lightning would strike. And what we would say is lightning already struck. <laughs> it struck 2,000 years ago. And, and, and our message is to get that word out to everyone in Doylestown and, and in the world. Yeah, our God is not to be trifled with. He's a holy God. But his essence is love. You have to demand for, you have to demand and cling to your sin for you to experience him as a God of, of wrath, ultimately. The very essence of this God is overflowing love. And so he says, this is the, what I want the community to be shaped by. That's the pattern. And then the final thing we see is that this pattern, when it's put into practice, it perfects us. And I refer you to the last phrase. He says, no one has ever seen God the closest you can get to really see God, because our God doesn't have a body except for the body that Jesus took up. Uh, our God is spirit. doesn't mean he's insubstantial. Spirit is more substantial than we can understand, but it doesn't fit in that category of sight. The place where you can come near to see this God is when Christian community is functioning in the gospel on full bore, and it says God then abides in that, and his love is perfected in us. It's not a solitary Lone Ranger thing. His love is perfected in us. This, this means, we again, we can't make spiritual progress, but we can't manifest who God is simply alone. We've got to do it in community. And that when we're in relationships and it's functioning in this way, something is seen of God that can't be experienced there, and we are perfected. What this also means is that it is only step one to become a Christian. If you think, why do I, does anyone become a Christian? It's because they're swept into this love relationship. But that's, that, and that is mind-blowing. When you are swept into a relationship with God, I think of uh, the, the old Puritan Richard Baxter went around boasting and says, I'm never gonna get married. I'm just going to be a single pastor. And then one day he got married and his friends all came to him and said, I thought you said that you were never gonna get married. You were always going around saying, I'm never gonna get married. God so help me. I will never get married. I will never get married. He says, what happened to you? You got married. And he says, God wouldn't help me. And I couldn't help myself. <laughs> and I got, I just, I just fell. The, the, the sense, the reason someone really becomes a Christian, it's not just this calculated decision, but it is that they can no longer keep the love out. They, they are swept up into it, and they can't resist it anymore. That's the power of the proclamation of the gospel. That's step one, but your love is not perfected by simply experiencing that on the vertical level. 
And you are not healed simply by experiencing that love on the vertical level, although it is very healing. It, it's the most healing thing in the world to actually come to the place where you receive the love of God in this way and you realize the love of God is not just contrary to what I deserve. Uh, it, is, it is the opposite of what I deserve in all respects. And that's healing, but you're not really healed by just this being healed. The love of God hasn't done its mission until you are transmitting that love. And, and that's, that's the vision Jesus has, that we, that we say to Doylestown, hey, there's love for you to receive from God, and then you know what? There's the perfection where you then become a transmitter of that kind of love. That's when you know you've really been gripped by the gospel, when it's flowing out from your life and community. I love Tim Keller and Kathy Keller's book that they wrote together on marriage. Excellent book. Substantive book. And one of the things they do well is they ask the question in a few different ways. They say, what is marriage for? For so many people, again, it's just like, well, I couldn't help it. It was a romantic impulse. But they say, no, what is marriage really for? And, and, I, and here's their answer. They say marriage, and I think you could, you could, don't have to just say marriage, but friendship, community, relationships. What are, what are relationships for? What are friendships for? And he, they answer it this way. They say, it is for helping each other become our future glory selves. I, I don't know who is in your life, your inner circle, but, but I would love for that to become a catchy phrase at Covenant. We are helping each other become our future glory selves. It's not very catchy, but it's rich in content. It is rich in content. And, and that's the missional element of this. We perfect the love of God. We can't do it alone. We need other people in our inner circle. And who is in your circle? You know, you in part get to choose. And, and, and yet we want to provide for that. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says, there are no ordinary people. He says, you and I have never talked to a mere mortal. He says, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, and libraries, these are mortal. And their life is to our life as a gnat, as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals with whom we work, joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. And he says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. I love that. And we cannot be who God wants us to be apart from that kind of community. I, I remember the date. It was, it was 1997. My wife and I both had this verse brought to our attention from Psalm 42. Um, Psalm 42 is a verse where David is in the dregs of depression and he is speaking to his own soul. Uh, and in, in Psalm 42, he, he speaks to himself and he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. And, and the reason I remember that is we were pastoring in the Beltway of Washington, D.C. And that particular year, every year about 40 people moved out of that congregation. So we had to take in 50 or 60 just to grow a little bit. And that particular year, the 40 people who moved out of the congregation were all the people we were close to. And we kind of had this lingering, we were kind of like, you know what? We're not going to be friends with anybody because they're all going to just move away. <laughs> and this verse came to us to arrest us in a kind of low-grade depression to say, we've got to replenish our festive throng. We were not made to be emotionally whole without that kind of community. 
It can't be gotten any other way. And it can't be festive unless they're the people who are caught up in this, in this divine dance of love and community that comes from the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Who is your festive throng? I love... Um, Henry Cloud tells this story of an experiment done on monkeys, and they discontinued it because of the animal cruelty involved. But they would take this monkey, and they would throw him in a cage alone, and then they would blare these lights and sounds and noises, and then they would measure the cortisol hormone. The cortisol hormone indicates how much stress that monkey's under. And then the variation they would do, and this was the only variation, they'd take the same monkeys, and they would put another monkey in the cage same lights, same sounds, basically scare these monkeys to death and they would measure the cortisol. And did you know that simply by adding one monkey, the cortisol level was 50% of what it was before. They were, they were twice as able to withstand stress because there was another monkey in the cage. And so the question for us is, whose monkey are we? <laughs> and, and who is the monkey in our cage? Who is the festive throng? And, and maybe the monkeys in your cage aren't working out all that well for you. You need to get somebody. They're only reducing the cortisol 10%. So get some other monkeys so that they reduce it by half. And so that you're reducing it by half. You can say, we're getting ready to kick off our group ministry, our small group ministry in a few weeks. And, and it's such an exciting time. You know, let this be put on your spiritual radar to say, let us help fill your cage with monkeys. Let us put you in other people's cages B because the love of Christ cannot be perfected in us apart from that. We can't do it alone. We, we have got to have this kind of sense of community. One of the glories of becoming a Christian is we are enabled to discover friends that we never knew we had. If you're not a Christian, this is probably not enough of a reason to become a Christian, but it's one of the benefits. When you become a Christian, there will be people come into your life that you would have never, ever gotten to know. I can think of so, so many. I would have never gotten to know them apart from being ushered into the same family. And it's really what, what community does. All of the other disciplines, really, they are given life and vibrancy and help through community, the love of God. It is the power that we need through the new birth. It is the pattern we have through the cross. It's cross-shaped community that doesn't flinch from our sin, but doesn't dilute what sin's implications are, grabs us and holds on to us, and then through that, the love of Christ is perfected. We become what we were meant to be, the idea God had for us when he created us and then when he redeemed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. This passage is so rich. Thank you for your mercy that you know our frame. You know who we are. We know what we need. Help us, Lord, to take that step and to resolve, Lord, that we would both be that kind of person for others and that we would welcome and let others in. That we would not let others down, but that we would also pursue others so that your work and your ways are perfected in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.